Welcome to season three of This Is Your Life in Silicon Valley, a podcast about the Bay Area, technology, and culture. I'm your host, Sunil Rajaraman, and I'm joined by my co-host, Yasha Kekiswold. Sunil, what's happening, man? Hey. Uh, well, not much. Just uh, Just wondering what's going on in my neighborhood. I always think about my neighborhood. I had a crazy experience this last weekend. I was flying back into the country and I got, um, I landed at like three o'clock on a Saturday. <clears throat> and as I was getting all my stuff ready at home and unpacking the next morning, uh, my wife and I were looking for something in our office, a laptop, and we couldn't find it. And she was like, uh, maybe somebody took it. I'm like, how would somebody come into our backyard, get into our office and just take the laptop and nothing else? Lo and behold, I look on our Nest Cams and somebody broke into our house and took our laptop. You know the first thing I did was? You posted it on Nextdoor. Literally, before I called the police, I took pictures of the person who we had in our backyard getting into the office, and I posted them on Nextdoor. Nextdoor is really a fascinating experience. I mean, so uh, we're, we have Nextdoor in our neighborhood in San Mateo, um, and um, you know it has, it has really, really good aspects to it. I think people sell a lot of stuff on it. I've sold a couple things on it. Um, and like some what? what did you sell? What did you sell? We sold a, a bike trailer on it. Really? Yeah. Cool. I didn't even know you could sell things on Nextdoor. You can sell things on Nextdoor. Um, but, you know, some others uh, have criticized Nextdoor uh, for, you know, crime alerts and, and things like that. So we we decided, you know what, we're going to have the co-founder of Nextdoor on the podcast to talk about, you know, whether Nextdoor is having a positive impact on the communities that, that it's in. You know, it's pretty cool. In the 30-plus interviews that we've done, I think we've only had less than five or six people who are actually from the Bay Area. Yeah, and and Prakash is an incredibly thoughtful guy, uh, clearly well read, and uh, I'm I'm glad uh, that you know this level of thought is what's going into a product like Nextdoor. This was a great interview. I think you'll enjoy it. Enjoy. Yeah, we're recording. Cool. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Do you go by Prakash? I do. I also go by Proc for people who've known me for a long time. PJ for people who can't pronounce my name. How many That's years do you have to know you before you're allowed to call you Proc? Oh, it, it starts right from the jump. Really? I'm very friendly. I'm very approachable. If you want to call me Proc, you can call me Proc. But Prakash is more kind of the professional identity, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we are. Uh, what are you going to do, Sunil? What are you going to call no, I mean, you know, so... Do you go by anything else, Sunil? No, I don't. We're, we're both, uh, you know, we're both South Indian. We're both over six feet tall. That's correct. I have a theory on this that it's because none of our ancestors ate hamburgers. That is correct. And we basically screwed it up. The last time you and I hung out, I think we ate hamburgers at my office. That's right. So yeah. we're, we're, we're outing ourselves as bad, uh, as bad, you know... My mom knows. <laughs> I don't know if my grandparents know, though, but... Wait yeah. a minute. This is why both of you were like seven feet tall? Nutrition. I think it's all about nutrition. Wow. I'm yeah. impressed. You know, this is funny. We've done this. We've done probably about 35 episodes of this podcast. This is the first time. I think it's because we have new equipment today. Yasha hasn't opened with the question that we opened with. I'm just getting there, Sunil. <laughs> getting a little I'm super excited up. about it. Proc, where'd you grow up? I'm glad you asked. I grew up in Hayward, California, a.k.a. The Stack is what we call it back in Hayward. So just right across uh, the Bay, the Bay Bridge or the San Mateo Bridge, um, but I've stayed here since. I've, I've never left the Bay Area. Uh, can I ask you why they call it the stack? Yeah, they, they call it the haystacks. Oh. And the reason for that is, I think, because it used to be farmland way back in the day. 
my high school mascot actually was the farmer at Hayward High School. So wow, ooh, that's solid. Yeah, what did you? High what school was that? Farmers. Do you remember your chant? Uh, we didn't really have a chant. Um, in fact, we didn't even have a mascot, and somebody in my class decided that it was time for us to have a mascot, and so he would just dress up like a farmer and like run around and <laughs> get people charged up. A guy named Greg Green. Shout out to Greg Green if he's if he happens to be listening to the podcast. I'm sure you can find him on he's, Twitter or Facebook and tag him. I'm he's, sure he's out he's there. Probably in the still universe. on the stack, hanging out the stack. So I mean, Hayward's stay. changed quite a lot, right? I mean, it's it's How? now there's kind of it's kind of getting what gentrified. Is that the yeah, I think so. My parents left Hayward probably 20 years ago, actually, 20 years to, to the year. And when I was there, it was a really convenient place to live. It was right across the bridge. My dad used to commute from Hayward all the way to Sunnyvale. And that was actually a reasonable commute back then. I think it was about a 35, 40-minute commute. And today, I think it's probably much worse than that. I don't do a lot of driving here in the Bay Area, but uh, I've heard it's, it's much worse now. You've heard. So where I've do you heard. live now? I live in San Francisco. Yeah. So I live in Lower Pacific Heights, and I walk to work, which is nice. It's like my thirty minutes of, you know, time to think and listen to podcasts, and you know, kind of catch up on life and and add a little bit of a moment of silence in my head. That's the way and to be. Yeah, it's cool. When when you're growing up in a suburb of San Francisco, is the city of San Francisco like a place that you think that you want to go, or is it is it even a part of the thought process for you and your friends growing up? In it's the interesting. When I grew up there. I don't remember ever going to San Francisco with my friends. I always remembered San Francisco from the perspective of a tourist, really. So yeah. we would have family that would come into town or people that were visiting us, and we would go out to the city, and we would do the exact same t things every time we came to the city, which is we would go to the Crookedest Street on Lombard. We would go look at the bridges, you know, all the Ghirardelli stuff. Square, Ghirardelli Square, Chinatown. See, I think that might be an Indian thing because yeah. that's that's what you do when your relatives come to town. You take them that's to right. see the Golden Gate Bridge. You go to Vista Point, Ghirardelli Square. It's actually what they say, Ghirardelli Square. Ghirardelli Square. That's yeah. correct. <laughs> I, what was interesting? I did the though, same thing when I was a tourist. Also, the same thing. I'm not Indian. Yeah. Well, Yasha Yasha has a very unique background. That's another podcast. You got to talk about the hippie commune at some point. Oh my. But uh, San Francisco is a great tourist town. It, it really is. is. It's great. The one thing I do remember is with my grandparents, I used to come out every once in a while because my parents both worked. And so sometimes during the day in the summertime, my grandparents would bring me out to San Francisco. And they were really into making jewelry, I guess. They would take like little pieces of gold and turn them into necklaces and mm -hmm. things like that. South Indian people um, have this obsession with jewelry. And so I would come with them to Chinatown. And I remember just walking the streets of Chinatown and being fascinated by the vibrance of those communities and how many stores there were and how many different types of people were kind of just roaming around in the middle of the day. And the one thing I really remember is you, pro you guys are about the same vintage as me, is you remember the show Transformers? Of course. So they used to sell these Transformer toys and then they would have kind of these knockoffs in Chinatown. So I was the kid who came to school with all the knockoff versions of the Transformer toys because that's what my grandparents would buy me. That was the bait that <laughs> they would use to take me into San Francisco. So those are my memories called, uh, in the city. Those are called GoBots. There's so much in common. We have to we have to do another. We have to do an Indian South Indian podcast at some point when we would travel to India and you would you would go through Singapore or Hong Kong. They would have the uh, the knockoff video game consoles. Oh yeah, yeah, and the knockoff Capcom games, and so it was a it was sort of like a badge of honor to bring back one of those from your trips. Oh totally, I used to get made fun of at school because I had the non-standard, like clearly the not real Transformer toys, but I think I was pretty resilient back then. I felt like I had the same thing or something equivalent. So so as you're grown up and you're being a tourist in San Francisco but living in the stack. 
did you say did you say at any point in time I want to leave I want to go somewhere else I want to experience another part of the United States or another part of the world no it was strange I the closest I got to that was when I was doing college admissions and I applied to a bunch of different schools they were all in California I hadn't really thought about going out east um, I think it was largely because of cold weather I wasn't really adapted to cold weather and growing up in Hayward and going to public school in Hayward, and Hayward, the Hayward School District wasn't the greatest school district at the time. We didn't have a lot of students that were going to four-year schools. You know, probably 20% of our, our graduating class, maybe, if that. And, you know, we had a graduating class of maybe 200 people. So, so when I thought about where I wanted to go to school, I just wanted to be somewhere close by to the people that I knew were also going to school. So I ultimately ended up at Berkeley, but the one choice I had was either going to Berkeley or going to UC Santa Barbara. And Santa Barbara, you know, if you guys have been to the campus, so it's beautiful. It's Isla Vista and the beach and everything. And I think my dad rightly recognized that it was a little too beautiful. And he, being a Cal alumnus himself, was like, nah, I think you're going to go to school 15 minutes from home. And you're going to live at home the first semester that you go to school. So Ooh. so I actually commuted to, to Berkeley my first semester at Cal. Does that change your experience at Cal? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Not I for felt the better or for the good, for the worse. For the much, better? much for the worse. Right. Yeah. And I think I was a little young uh, when I started in college. I'd skipped the second grade, so I was only 16 years old. And I think my parents were aware of you know the fact that I'd never lived on my own, that I'd never been away from home. I never went to boarding school or spent summers abroad or any of that kind of stuff. And so they're like, you know, we got to keep an eye on this kid. He's a little young. He's a little reckless. Let's make sure he stays at home. And so I remember I would take Bart into school, and then I would come home in the evening just as everybody else was going to go have dinner or do other fun stuff or whatever it was they were doing. And then I would have to drive back on the weekends if I wanted to see any of my friends. And I remember going back to my parents and saying, hey, look, I really want to live on campus. And I just saw a posting on the wall for a unit at one of the dorms. Can we consider this? And luckily they said yes. So you were like the uh, the Kobe Bryant of high school students dropping out of <laughs> dropping out of high school straight into the pros of Berkeley. If you, I, don't know, <laughs> I you was know. just a little early, just oh, a little okay. early, just a little early. Okay, just a little early. What was the? I want to just quickly cover the Berkeley years. What was the best sporting event you saw while you were at Berkeley? You know, I was there. I was the same year as Jason Kidd. Yep. And Jason Kidd and that team, uh, it was just phenomenal. It, yeah. I, it's really hard to describe the experience of being at Berkeley because I don't I don't know that Berkeley has experienced that kind of excitement around a team like when Jason signed. Jason was the highest the, the most recruited player in the country. People thought he was going to go to Kansas or North Carolina or one of the or Duke, one of those powerhouse schools and he ended up staying home. You know, he grew up here in El Cerrito uh, and in Oakland and he ended up coming to Berkeley and I remember the whole excitement of just getting student tickets you know, season tickets to go to those games. And so I remember it wasn't on campus, but I remember being in the dorms when we upset Duke in the first round of the NCAA tournament and the whole campus was electric because nobody expected us to beat that team. It was Bobby Hurley, Grant Hill, Christian Leitner. I mean, some real, real tough competition. And we got out of there with a win. So that for me was probably one of the highlights of, of college in terms of sports. Were you a Warriors fan at the same time? Yeah, I've been a Warriors fan growing up, and we were terrible for you, uh, so do you many think years. Jason Kidd's team, while you were at school, could have taken the Warriors at the time. Yeah, probably. I mean, there were there were some good players on that team. Lamont Murray was on that team. Monty Buckley, Jason Kidd. Yeah, I don't, I'm trying to think of who was on the Warriors at that time. And late, I think it, late '90s would have been wow. mid '90s. Yeah. Um, 
Wow. Like 92 to 96. So that would have been post Weber, Mitch Richmond, uh, yeah. run, the run TMC teams, Hardaway. Um, yeah, if you look back, that run TMC team was not together for very long, actually. Yeah, so they had the best offense in the league. All right, let's 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 talk about let's what talk about after this Berkeley? stuff. So let me try to connect this somehow to next door. So, <laughs> what happens after Berkeley, though? What yeah. do you do? Like what? What? So I actually dropped out of school. This is this is part of my story. Is I ended up dropping out of school. Um, part of that was because I had come into school undeclared, and my senior year I was still undeclared, and so. I got a call from the dean of the College of Letters and Sciences, which is never a good thing. Like, a dean should never call you while you're in school. And I remember him sitting across the table from me and saying, son, I'm looking at your transcript, and it's not clear to me what your objective is here at the university. Your what senior you, year. Yeah, this is my hmm. senior year, and I'm undeclared. And I said, well, you know, I think I want to do computer science. And, of course, I'd taken a lot of computer science courses, but I'd also taken a lot of other courses, like Integrative Biology 33, the study of dinosaurs. I had taken the Sociology of Sport, which was a fantastic class. And so I was sort of exploring all of these different interests, which was great. I think it all connects back to what I'm doing today in, in this weird, circuitous path. But I remember telling him I want to do computer science. And he said, you know, you're going to be here a while. You've got a lot of work to do. And I said, well, tell me what's my fastest way out. You know, what's my closest degree? And he said sociology. And again, South Indian kid with parents who gave me two options. You can be an engineer or a doctor. Um, sociology was not on the menu. And so I kind of thought to myself, hmm, what am I going to do here? And I'll admit that it wasn't the most well-thought-out plan, but I ended up taking a job at a company called Excite. And this was during the first dot-com boom. And now here I am, I'm 20 years old. I'm working at this job where I'm doing data entry, but I actually know how to program. And so I'm looking at the tasks that I'm doing every day, which are repetitive and clearly could be automated, and so I start writing scripts to automate the work that I'm doing. And all of a sudden, you know, the guy who's looking at the TPS reports on productivity by, you know, data entry person, you know, I'm, I'm an order of magnitude more productive than anybody else on the team. And he said, like, what are you doing? And I said, well, I actually know how to program. And that actually launched me into a career as a software engineer. So uh, through that experience, I met a lot of really interesting people in that formative experience, people like David Z, who is now on my board at Greylock. Um, he was the general manager of our division. I used to build tools for him back in the day. Um, folks like Joe Krause, who was one of the founders, Ryan McIntyre. It was just an incredible time of learning because everybody was figuring out how to build consumer internet applications and what that would look like. I think the diasporas from some of those companies back then, I was at Yahoo at the same time. Oh, yeah. And it's like it's just powerful. Like they, We were hugely all trying to powerful. figure stuff out. That's a cool story. Well, I am a, yeah. I'm a few years younger than, than you two, but I do remember, <laughs> I do remember Excite. I do remember Excite well, um, uh, but you know the the funny thing about that story is actually for a while you were the Kobe Bryant, but you ended up as the Darius Miles since you yeah, dro yeah. since you dropped out of Berkeley, right? That's right. D Miles That's right. or Kwame Brown or what? I mean, everybody drops out of <laughs> everybody goes goes pro early, time. right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, now fast forward to today. Yeah. And you decided to work on kind of a very important problem and. It just does feel like we're going through this phase where um, people are feeling more and more dissociated with their with their neighborhoods, their existing environment. Um, talk about how you know the, sort of the the brief origin story of of Nextdoor. Yeah, so it was the summer of 2010, and we were looking for an idea. We had just come off of a pivot of a failed idea. We were we were working in sports. Our my co-founders and I had started a company called Fanbase, and at, upon discovering that it wasn't going as well as we thought it was going to go. We had raised a bunch of money, two rounds of funding. So Bill Gurley at Benchmark had funded us. 
Jason Pressman at Shasta Ventures had also put in money. So we'd raised, I think, $12 million. But now we're at a point where we have no idea. And seven of the team members, including the three of us original founders, carried over to the new idea. So so for those you know, of our listeners not, you know, not parlant and in VC, okay, so this sounds like you you came up with an idea, raised twelve million dollars. There's some <laughs> there's some missing missing pieces in there. Like what what was, what was the that idea? original what was, idea? What was the idea and why was it, you know, wh- how did you raise $12 million for it? So the original idea was in a world where there was more and more user-generated content on the web and these communities that were building around different affinities, we thought that one of the primary identities of people as they kind of grow up was around their sporting careers and that there wasn't a way online to commemorate your athletic achievements. So for me, as a high school basketball player, there's no evidence anywhere on the web that I played high school basketball and there's no place for me to commemorate my achievements as a high school basketball player. And so in the same way, for Division three lacrosse players or field hockey players at different universities, they just don't have a space on the web. And we wanted to build this community-generated, almost IMDB-like resource for anyone who had participated in sports at any level, so that LeBron James, Michael Jordan, uh, Joe Montana... How many people is that? Um, it's actually a pretty big addressable market. It turns out that... People like Reed Hoffman and Bill Gurley and others that we talked to kind of thought, hey, this could work. And the business model behind that would have been merchandising and photo books and scrapbooks and a lot of different ideas that we had around commerce. Um, Ultimately, it turns out, as I think we're probably concluding in this very moment, that nobody actually cares about my high school basketball career, including me. (laughs) So uh, ultimately, the demand just wasn't there. And so when we came back to the company, we knew a lot of those people were really, really passionate about sports. And we went back to them and we said, hey, the sports idea isn't working. We're probably not going to stay in sports. So for those of you who want to stay and kind of do a full reset and learn how to build a business, stay. And for those of you who want to leave, we'll pay you a severance, which is really unusual if you've like ever been in a bi- business that's going out of business. Um, and we'll help you find new jobs and we'll part ways as friends. And half the company left. And so the seven that remained were the ones that ultimately pivoted into the new idea. So coming back to the next door origin story, that summer, it just so happened there was a New York Times op-ed written by a guy named Charles Blow, who's now kind of a social justice maven. At the time, he was a, a columnist for the New York Times. He wrote this article about our retreat from physical communities into digital communities. And at the time, thinking back to 2010, this is when Facebook was ubiquitous and mainstream. Yeah. LinkedIn was coming on board. Twitter And so people were more and more comfortable with these online identities, but it was consuming them. And he talked about, he cited this Pew Research study that had just come out that said that 29% of Americans know only some of their neighbors, which really implies few, and 28% of Americans didn't know a single neighbor by name. And that struck us as this really, really strange situation. And as you kind of double-click into the research around this, the seminal work about community is this book called Bowling Alone. It's written by Dr. Robert Putnam, who is the head of the sociology department at Harvard. And he writes about this precipitous decline in community dating back to the 1960s. And the reasons for that are, and I'll tie this back to kind of the modern context, but back then you had a proliferation of cars, so people became more mobile. People started to get televisions in their homes, so they became more insular because of technology. And then lastly, there was a generational shift. The children of kind of the World War II era were anxious to kind of get out of the communities in which they lived and go out to the coast and move around. And so all of that started this precipitous decline in community that is now continuing to today. So the circumstances were pretty ripe for us to think about 
well, how can we counter this sociological phenomenon? And is there a technology solution that would make it such that you could not just communicate with friends and family around the world on Facebook or your professional network, so, but so your this, neighbors? So this sounds inspiring and, you know, a lot of people are probably listening to this saying, wow, I want to quit and, and work for Nextdoor. Yeah. Let me push on it, though, a little bit. And are you, and by you, I mean co-founders of social media companies in general, are you actually succeeding at this? Because yes. people feel more, it just feels more divided than ever. And so I'm on Twitter, It you know, one moment it feels like the world is going to end. Uh, I could be on Instagram, you know, I feel uh, like you could feel envy around you yep. know, the way people... You go on next door, you might hear about criminal activity in your neighborhood. You might so why do you why do you say you're succeeding? Yeah, we we get stories almost every day and we share these out with the company every week, these inspiring stories of how just by knowing your neighbors, you're actually safer, you're more prosperous, you in fact live longer. This is all proven out by Dr. Putnam's research as well. So here's an example. In the most dire of circumstances, if you don't have access to your community, the community in which you live in, as an example, Hurricane Harvey in Houston. The first day of the floods, the local 911 dispatch center in Houston was overrun with calls, 90,000 calls in that day. And so there's a story on next door, a woman standing on the roof of her home, unable to get through to 911, hitting a busy signal. She sends an urgent alert out through next door, and a neighbor responds within a minute saying, we know where you live, my husband is out in a canoe rescuing other people and dropping them off at the local high school gym for shelter. We're gonna come get you next. So that's an extreme example of people under real duress. But even the most banal examples, so everyday things like trying to sell a used couch, reuniting with a lost pet, what ultimately ends up happening is there's an online to offline activation of social capital. So sh social capital is this thing that Dr. Putnam describes as having eroded. And when you have communities that are high in social capital, outcomes across the board get better. So how do you really build the social capital? It starts with these utility-driven use cases. So, so, so I, meeting I in like, person. And I love, I love the anecdotes. Yeah, but, uh, uh, but if I were to press on that even further, how, like, how do you measure whether you're succeeding at this, and how do you, you know, measure whether you're succeeding against this, against this mission relative to other social networks? Like, what, how, you know, how do you put this together into, like, we yeah, have this is actually working? Yeah, there's a couple of ways. Number one is if you contrast us to something like Facebook. The fact of the matter is that your neighbors aren't actually connected to you on Facebook in this local context, and so you don't even have the resource anywhere else. So the graph that we're building is completely unique and is, is endemic to kind of the use cases that we use. Number two is that we can see when neighbors actually connect either through direct messages or through conversational threads, and so we know where that connectivity lies. And if you look at the different types of use cases, whether it's, again, reuniting with lost pets or selling used couches or banding together for backyard barbecues, we know that those use cases drive offline interaction. So this idea of online to offline, even if it's not measurable in the real world because we're not putting sensors on people and like measuring their proximity, we know that these use cases activate those offline interactions. And once you get there, once you get to those offline interactions, a really interesting thing happens. Number one, you meet someone, you have a conversation with them, and that conversation goes just like you would think it would go with a neighbor. How long have you lived in the neighborhood? Oh, do you have kids? Do your kids go to this school? All of a sudden, you start to activate these affinity use cases for which all these other platforms are known around groups and local groups. And those groups start to light up on our platform as well. So while we can't measure the true online to offline effect, 
we can see it through these secondary kind of interactions, like direct messages, conversational threads, and then the activation of affinity groups online. So when I'm, I'm really happy that you're putting your sociology degree to work. So that's <laughs> great. I don't even have I'm the sure degree. You're, I'm sure, I know. I'm teasing. I don't even have totally, the degree. Totally teasing. The second thing is, d so do you keep a, like a running list of the most active connected neighborhoods in all of Nextdoor? And how, like, where are you now? How many countries are you in? How many cities, states? We are now in 11 countries globally. We have about 260,000 neighborhoods uh, that are online on the platform. And I would say that we started, obviously, here in the Bay Area through friends and family. Mm -hmm. But since then, we've proliferated neighborhoods everywhere. I think we're at close to 100% coverage of neighborhoods in the United States. So we're well beyond kind of the 90% mark in, the, in the U.S. What's the best neighborhood in America? The best neighborhood in America, actually, up until recently, I don't know if Kim has the, the latest on this, but is Potrero Hill. What? It's actually here in the city. Potrero Hill, for a long time, was the most active neighborhood in the entire country. Wow. So... Yeah, uh, so uh, Kim, by the way, is an innocent bystander in this room <laughs> and uh, works with Nextdoor just to make sure that we're not going to say anything or ask anything too aggressive or <laughs> personal. Potrero Hill, is that yeah. like a um, friend's bias? Like because they, the people that you knew that seeded the neighborhood? I don't like think so. Actually, Potrero Hill was not among the first neighborhoods that we begged and pleaded to join the platform. And huh. I think it just turns out that there's so much... Um, there's so much activity. I think we, we do tend to skew towards places where people are planting roots and they feel more like homes, right? And, and they have a shared interest in the health of their community. And for whatever reason, Potrero Hill is really, really lit up. Potrero. You asked about the best neighborhood. I'm curious. That just got me thinking. Not the worst neighborhood, but are there, when you think about a go-to-market for next door, are there places that just don't work? And I'm not asking you to name specific places, uh -huh. but... But that, it can't just work 100% of the time, can it? No, it doesn't. It doesn't. There, there are some neighborhoods uh, in different, different regions that have not lit up in the same way. So, for example, in vertical living situations like New York, um, I think there are certain things that we need to change about the product in order for that to work a little bit more you know, effectively. But that being said, I think it all comes back to kind of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? So at the bottom of the pyramid food and water and shelter at the top is like self-actualization. But right in the middle is this sense of belonging and safety and security. And that's something that I think everywhere in the world, no matter whether you live in a high-rise building or not, you want to be connected to people. And to your earlier point, we're seeing that community infrastructure erode to the point where people are, are a little more self-indulgent these days. They're back, they'd rather spend time on their phones than with people in, in real life. And they don't realize that you actually need those people in your community. Let's talk about the security thing really quick. So I have used Nextdoor. I have myself posted a crime alert on Nextdoor uh, after somebody kind of, you know, our car was parked on the street. Someone broke into our car. Yep. And I was appreciative that San Mateo PD responded and acknowledged it. Yasha shows me right before this. You just posted a crime alert. Just this, we had our house broken into, our office broken into over the weekend. Somebody sold something out of it, caught him on the Nest Cam. Yep. Posted it on Nextdoor. And one of our neighbors that I don't know, uh, connected back and said, hey, we think that this is this person who the local PD had posted about. We connected it together. When the uh, duty officer came over to our house, he was like, yeah, that's the person. We got it. We got him. This is getting to a question, which is just around the whole notion of security. Has uh -huh. it, you know, Amazon has made some announcements around Ring, and I, I haven't dug into the details of that too much, but is, has it skewed too much to the security side? Like, what What's the what's the role of crime alerts? What do people use Nextdoor for? Any yeah, certainly that is one of the use cases, and I think you see that in urban areas like like our own communities here in San Francisco. 
And one of the benefits of that is not necessarily vigilante justice where your, your neighbor is going to go find a burglar and apprehend them. Um, it's not really about that. It's about the support that you receive from your community, right? So sometimes all you want to do is be seen and be heard and, and to get that sympathetic ear. And a lot of cases, that's, that's ultimately what people manifest on the platform. So again, it comes back to this sense of connection. Now, that being said, that's not the primary use case. In fact, the primary use case is people transacting on the platform and buying and selling and sharing things with one another. It's the, it's the place that gets the most engagement on our I platform. I would have never guessed that. Yeah. I've, I've, sold, I've sold two things on Nextdoor. Yeah. Oh, you have? I have. Wow. What's what? really interesting is that you can also give things away. And in your local community, when you do have that level of trust, right, trust underpins everything that we do. Everyone's a verified member of the local community. And so you know that you're interacting with real people and not bots or you know, bad, malicious actors that don't actually live in your community. Because of that, then you're more likely to give away that pair of children's skis or that couch that you're not using or an old TV to someone who's just right there in the neighborhood and can come pick it up. And again, that's that online to offline activation again because you have to give them the actual yeah. good, right? How do you think about, you know, competition in this in the space right you have the you have Facebook I mean you, you kind of tangentially probably compete with Facebook Twitter Instagram a bit and Amazon is an interesting one because they probably have a lot of information you yep. know like just what are your overall thoughts on you know are you you know do you stay up at night worrying about them do you just not care what's the you know what's we, we look we we are largely inwardly focused because we're very very purpose and mission driven right our purpose is to cultivate a kinder world where everyone has a neighborhood they can rely on i'm not sure that articulation of purpose exists in a company anywhere else in the world right so for us we feel like what we're doing is very unique and valuable now as we think about who else is peripherally trying to do things that we do we're trying to be this neighborhood hub where it's the place that you can go for all of your local needs so some of our competitors are places like Craigslist or OfferUp where they do the kinds of transactional buying and selling types of things that we do. In other cases, it's places like um, like Facebook where there are affinity groups that are local in nature, moms groups and parents groups and things like that that you see on Nextdoor. So I think if you look at Nextdoor as this kind of hub that has all of these different spokes off of it, you could point to any one of those spokes and say, oh yeah, there's another company that might do that but I don't think you can find the combination of the network, the graph that we're building that connects residents, local businesses, organizations, fire and police departments, local government, all into one network that ultimately unlocks all of this value in one way. So I think that's, that's where we think we're unique is in being this neighborhood hub, even if there are other people that are doing slices of what we do. So early, early days of social networks, 2010 when you guys started, Facebook's getting big, big, almost ubiquitous at that point. Um, it's less of a serious question, but curious from you being in the Bay Area and being around a lot of these companies starting at that time, which of the social networks that aren't around anymore do you wish actually had an application right now? Of those social networks that weren't around, I remember MySpace had made a pivot to music that I thought was really interesting and I think still exists, but without the kind of attention that it once drew. and. I thought it was really interesting to connect with other people that shared your musical interests and to have music as sort of an expression of your identity. And I, I thought that that was really cool. And I, I actually just looked at MySpace earlier today in a different context. And I was surprised to see it still existed, but it's completely different, so. Yeah, Tumblr's still around too. I think Tumblr's still around, yeah. Tumblr, uh, are they? Yeah, it's just kind of degraded into, you know, there was a, 
a Twitter thing about there was a celebrity taken down by old Tumblr posts. Really? Camilla Cabello, the singer. Oh. Yeah, yeah. So she had some stuff on there that was, I don't know. Boy, don't don't put stuff on social networks, Anil. <laughs> Uh, yeah, you gotta you gotta go through pretty pretty thoroughly these days, right? There was the your sports guy. There was Josh Allen, the Bills quarterback, almost yeah. got taken out for tweets he sent when he was sixteen. Oh yeah, yeah. I think even Nick Bosa went through some of that as well. So yeah, 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 yeah. pretty uh, pretty pretty hard times out there. What's the uh, what's the sports team that you care most about in the Bay Area right now? Oh, by far the Warriors. The Warriors. I, I love basketball, and I'm, I've been a Warriors season ticket holder for 15, 16 years now. So. Um, my wife and I go to a lot of Warriors games. In fact, I'm going Saturday as well. So, so we're recording this at the NBA trade deadline, and yes, <laughs> Andrew Wiggins is the the latest Warrior. Yeah, let's uh, see. Kim is Kim is not getting nervous enough. I mean, so we're not asking hard enough questions. But I'm going <laughs> to ask the Andrew Wiggins. Come on, really? So you know, my initial response was, hmm, that's <laughs> that's a little unusual. That being said, he's six foot eight. He's positionally a true three. He's a true small forward, unlike D'Angelo Russell. So when you think about Clay and Steph coming back, he actually has a position that he can play. And I think there's something about culture. Um, we had Draymond Green come to the office and talk to, our, talk to our team about leadership and culture and teamwork. I think there's something to be said for taking somebody who's got a lot of raw talent, who's young. I didn't realize, because it seems like Andrew Wiggins has been in the league forever. Mm -hmm. The guy's only 24 years old. Really? So, yeah, he's only 24. He turns 25, I think, in a couple of weeks. So we'll throw him a birthday party or something out here. But that being said, I think a guy like that is coachable. And yeah. I think in the right culture, you could probably activate. He was a number one draft pick. Yeah, yeah, no, I w I'm, a, I'm a Cavs fan. I mean, I think, you know, I went to high school in Cleveland. I was so glad we got rid of him. He, he, uh... He's he's a ball hog. He's selfish. <laughs> but do you and think no that 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 actually can happen on a team where you've got Steph Curry and Clay Thompson, Kevin and Durant, and Draymond almost got into an altercation last year on the sideline, so which effectively you, uh, ended his when career you hit as a 25, warrior. man. When you hit twenty five, it's just like you start to self actualize <laughs> and you recognize things that are going on around you. The Wiggins thing is going to be a meltdown. I can't believe you've already talked yourself into it. I, I'm giving it a shot. I'm giving it a shot. I believe in Bob Myers. I believe in that front office. So they've made some good calls. They made some good calls. What's your reaction to the Super Bowl? I'm definitely disappointed, but again, maybe this is a rationalization on my part, but I didn't expect to be in the Super Bowl. I think we're a year ahead of schedule, and I think we punched above our weight class this year. And knowing the composition of the team and the folks that are coming back, and it feels like all the pieces are there. You can imagine Garoppolo getting better. You can imagine Shanahan being reflective about, about his experience and kind of plugging that back in. The defensive line stays together. I mean, it's a great, it's a well-assembled team. So yeah, we, we're gonna we're gonna press on the sports a little bit. <laughs> okay, <laughs> they're up by what 10, 10 points in yep. the fourth quarter, and you've got a running game that's just just destroying the Chiefs. Yeah, seven yards a carry or something, right? Yeah. Why don't you wh like what's going through Kyle Shanahan's head? Why doesn't he keep running the ball? I'm not sure. Uh, he definitely. If you're head coach, do you run the ball in that situation? Yes, I I definitely would keep running the ball, both to kind of extinguish the clock and to you know take out chunks of yardage. But I don't know. We'll have to ask Kyle. But looks <laughs> like you. I think when you start to run the ball because you're playing defensive offense, like you kill your momentum. Like it's a that's a real thing. You know what? Bay Area sports fans have been spoiled for a long time. <laughs> Giants We've had 10, it pretty 12, good for 14. A while. We've had it pretty good. Warriors, what, 15, 17, 18? Or, yeah, yeah, that's right. So, you know. We're doing okay out here. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think <laughs> yeah, we're so. doing all right. We're getting close to time, um, so I wanted to seed a question for you, and I know Sunil wants to poke in a couple others, but I, yeah. I want you to think about the social networks that you spend your time on today and uh, who there you pay attention to that you think our listeners might be also uh, interested in getting some value from. You know, increasingly, you increasingly, I've been really interested in this kind of space of kindness and understanding kindness and like the effects that kindness has on society. We're, in, we're inundated with bad news. Um, there's a woman who's really interesting. Her name is Kelly Harding, and she wrote a book called The Rabbit Effect, and it describes how kindness and just acts of kindness and community can actually impact your health. There's this whole area of study. I don't understand it well enough, but it's epigenetics, which is about how chemical bindings to your DNA can actually change your your physical well-being and health. And a lot of that is is thought to be because of like psychological effects of kindness and wellness. And so um, I think she's really, really interesting. So I've started following her. On Twitter? Um, or on Twitter. Yeah. yeah, on Twitter. And she just released a book called The Rabbit Effect, which is really, really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, on Instagram, again, in the spirit of like positivity, I love what Will Smith is doing on Instagram. I think he just brings such joy into the world. He talks about interesting things. He's inspiring. And, and for me, you know, people talk a lot about how social networks are you know, crushing our brains and making us depressed and divided and polarized. And I try and actively avoid engaging in the stuff that I know is just fodder for that. And when I go to social networks now, and especially places like Twitter, I want to engage with people who, you know, Bill Gurley is a great follow uh, in terms of technology and investing and thinking about the public markets. And, you know, I want to follow people who, from whom I can learn and understand new things um, or who inspire me. So, so I, we had uh, Kate Clark from The Information and TechCrunch is one of our recent guests. And we actually asked her this question outright. You know, do we think we're in a place where journalists just don't like tech and vice versa? Um, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I think you'd have to ask the journalist, but my, my understanding of this, and, you know, I follow people like Kara Swisher. Um, I think it's about the same relationship that journalists have to politicians almost. It's, it's this desire for accountability and transparency and understanding, you know, what is it you're trying to do? And sometimes tech companies step into um, situations or say things that, that really, you know, kind of blow your mind. You're like, why are you, why are you doing some of that stuff? For us, it's all about kind of coming back to that purpose, right, and being true to the purpose of, again, our, our purpose is to cultivate a kinder world where everyone has a neighborhood they can rely on. So we always have to be true to that in the way that we talk about the company and the way that we actually build our products. So for me, I think, yes, it's probably deserved in aggregate that, look, a lot of the ways that we interact with one another have changed dramatically because of social media. The way that information transmits has changed because of social media. Um, There's some culpability and accountability that we as an industry need to fess up to, but in terms of how journalists feel about it, I kind of think it's the same relationship to any industry, financial services, politicians, tech. Most unexpected next-door use case. Uh, I'll, I'll bring back one from way back in the early days. So this is back when we were begging people to use the platform. Um, someone in, I believe it was Woodside, which was one of our first four neighborhoods, lost a boa constrictor and put it out there that like my boa constrictor went missing. And of course, people freaked out. They're like, oh my god, there's a boa, stri- boa constrictor loose. Um, but they got reunited. <laughs> so many times. But they actually did get reunited. So um, <laughs> we've also had people get married on Nextdoor. People have met and gotten married on Nextdoor. Wow. Um, 
there's a there's a lot of pretty interesting stuff that happens. It should be next door dating. Yeah. Is that is that coming? Uh, I don't know if it's going to be a product feature, but I don't know if that that'll work in neighborhoods though. That could actually it, be kind of that could go that could go wrong, right? It might. I mean, it might. It might. Well, in a world, there's actually in a world where loneliness is an epidemic, particularly among elderly populations, people want to build relationships, and if those relationships ultimately become romantic relationships, even even better in some cases, right? It's really it's really about that feeling of loneliness that has pervaded us. Well, this was great. Thanks for uh, thanks for joining us. We found the only uh, Andrew Wiggins fan. <laughs> the Anywhere? Mississippi. I don't know. I'm Welcome excited. to the Bay, Andrew Wiggins. <laughs> Welcome to the Bay. And happy almost birthday. Yes. Oh man, Andrew Wiggins. I I think he's he's going to be a terrible warrior. I'm I uh, I I've never seen this side of you. I yeah. I mean, I have strong opinions on on sports. I mean, I also think that you should probably run the ball when you're up by ten in the fourth quarter. <laughs> don't lose the momentum, deal. Look, I, I like today's conversation a lot. I think the like the very thoughtful approach that's clearly grounded in like building a social network that has a relationship into trying to solve a very real social problem is important. And I feel like I got a little bit more insight into the way that Nextdoor is being driven. Yeah, I mean, it is it is nice to know that the architects of you know these types of social networks they're not they're not thinking about the day-to-day noise that we think about, like, oh, what crime alerts are popping up. They, they have a much longer view, and I, I was refreshed to hear that from Prakash. I, um, I'm, maybe we could submit him for the next CEO for Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> no comment. I, no comment. Hey, listen, um, if you like the podcast as much as I like Sunil, please, on the place that you found the podcast and listen to it, go rate us five stars. We, uh, we hope you enjoyed today's episode, and, uh, and we'll, we'll – See you Talk next to you time. next time.